From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com, WISE dot com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. The youths, I guess probably don't even know Seinfeld. I've watched it on Hulu since. Mm, you said. It is also funny, though, because it's, they are supposed to be my age, and I'm like, what happened <laughs> in the early 1990s? My God. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with Jane Coaston, ProPublica's Dara Lind. Uh, before we start, if you guys could just help us out in podcast land a little bit, we are running a survey. It is at voxmedia.com slash podsurvey. Uh, getting input from you about what we're doing here is really important to the future. So voxmedia.com slash podsurvey. Uh, we are excited. I'm excited because impeachment talk is heating up. It's one of the yeah, big... Yeah, wow. Yeah, we picked this episode topic like a whole 48 hours ago, and yeah. this is the rare 48-hour window that has vindicated our choice of yes, episode Yes, it's only topic. gotten newsier, <laughs> as we said. So the subject of inquiry is Ukraine and Donald Trump and a whistleblower report that first started leaking into the media a few days ago. And, and the basic contours of the situation are that Congress appropriated a bunch of military assistance to the government of Ukraine. The Trump administration was holding up the disbursement of that aid. And then they appear to have had conversations with the Ukrainian government in which Trump was, we, we don't know exactly what Trump said, but at a minimum, uh, strongly hinting that if the Ukrainians wanted to get their military assistance, they were going to have to help Trump out by launching some kind of corruption inquiry that was designed to make Joe Biden look bad. Is that yeah, everyone's understanding of this? Yeah, it seems to be that there are kind of three separate stories here. There's Biden and his son, Hunter, and their dealings in the Ukraine. Then there's Trump, who wants an investigation into whatever happened for political purposes, not because he's genuinely concerned about uh, corruption in the Ukraine. And then there's how we, the media, are talking about both of these stories, well, which I, appears I, I, to, in some ways, have infuriated everyone. I mean, I would I would add kind of sub to there the um, what kinds of pressure Donald Trump and right. Slash other arms of the Trump government slash Rudy Giuliani, who may or may not have been 
acting as or perceived as being an arm of the Trump administration in which, Ukraine. Which, again, is I, I feel like this is a, a we, we're going to I am not going to let us get sidetracked. I am not going to wander off onto a what did Rudy Giuliani know and when did he know it path. But I still am like, why would the State Department ask? That guy to do that? Well, but to- this is the sort of thing where uh, I found myself over the weekend relying on uh, Vox.com content because it turns out that no longer uh, being a full-time Vox.com employee means I no longer have this, like, ambient awareness of all of the news Right, my morning coffee okay. every morning. So, so, so let's go all the way back, right? Right. Several administrations ago in Ukraine— uh, There was a Ukrainian energy company, and Hunter Biden was on the board of that energy company. And Joe Biden was vice president of the United States at that time. Uh, There was a prosecutor who was doing an investigation into this energy company, and then that prosecutor was himself fired as part of some intra-Ukrainian hubbub. Uh, The allegation against Joe Biden, which was first aired by Ken Vogel in The Times a few months ago, was that Biden had inappropriately interceded with the Ukrainian government in order to help this company uh, that his son was involved with. This, in fact, has been looked at uh, and is not true to the best of my knowledge. Uh, Anders Oslund, who is a, I assume, Swedish from the name, uh, like international corruption guy, he he did a thread on this. Nobody who isn't running against Joe Biden for office in the international community seems to have had any problem with this prosecutor having gotten fired or think that Joe Biden had anything to do with it anyway. Right. It, as a matter of fact, the concern about the prosecutor appears not to have been that he wasn't that he was like doing too much to investigate this company, but that if anything, he wasn't doing enough to do to investigate, you know, similar. Right. Like that, that corruption in that sector. And so the logic of Joe Biden tried to get this dude fired because he might continue to not investigate his son's company. His entire argument, uh, Biden's is, when he talked about this in March 2016, because this has come up before, is that he was not the only person who wanted this prosecutor gone. Basically, like, the IMF wanted him gone. And so his quote was, I'm leaving in six hours. If the prosecutor is not fired, you're not getting the money. And then Joe Biden, because he's Joe Biden, said, well, son of a bitch, he got fired. And they put in place someone who was solid at the time. And that, to Joe Biden, was kind of the end of the story. Right. So so that is the the thing that occurred. Um, so then there was this story, right, this this story planted with with Vogel at the Times, which was trying to gin this back up again as a corruption thing. But that story, I, look, I mean, this was like classic, like you're, you're lucky to get your oppo written up. It was like you read the story and the story is like, yeah, but actually Biden didn't do this. Right. One of the things that makes it tricky to talk about this is because we're all as and by we, I mean both the media and the broader like population of politically aware people in the United States, a little bit traumatized by 2016, right? And so mm-hmm. there's substantial difficulty in talking about things that could have the appearance of corruption, especially when related to Democratic politicians, because I think everyone who is trying to talk about this in good faith has in the back of their minds, okay, a similar discourse when it came to the Clinton Foundation was a substantial part of the con- of the conversation around Hillary Clinton's candidacy in 2016, and that resulted in her being damaged by this kind of vague appearance of corruption stuff that didn't necessarily have the goods and losing to a, you know, to a figure who does not care about the appearance of corruption in the least. So 
with that said, there is a broader conversation that in a more sane polity could be had about what are the optics of having your son on the board of an energy company in a global hotspot while you're the vice president of the United well, States? Well, I, I agree, but I, I, I do. I want to like run down the the, the narrative thread of this okay. though, to the end because I think exactly what you said about 2016, but in the opposite, right? Mm-hmm. Is that like Donald Trump also learned the lessons of 2016. Mm-hmm. And I think that he understood that like while a vague appearance of impropriety regarding something Hunter Biden did years ago is not going to be a good campaign issue for him, if you have an ongoing investigation, the existence of the investigation is itself a news story. Right. Mm -hmm. And like the final nail in the coffin for Clinton's campaign was the news that the FBI investigation into her email server had been reopened. Right. And that did happen. Right. right? Like the reopening of the investigation was a real thing. Now, it turns out in retrospect, it was reopened simply because of the discovery of new copies of emails they had already reviewed, right? Right. But it's when an investigation exists, that becomes a perpetual source of news. So even though this Hunter situation had already been investigated and the facts seem very well known, Trump is pressuring the Ukrainian government to say they are opening a new investigation. Right. I mean, because you could be naive about this and be like, well, if Hunter did nothing wrong, if Joe Biden did nothing wrong, then what's wrong with the new investigation? What's wrong with a new investigation, right, is that, like, having a drip, drip, drip of news stories about the Hunter Biden investigation in Ukraine would be very bad for Joe Biden. And right? it's also, you know, this is something, and I thought it was it was smart that there was a conservative commentator who pointed out that, like, Trump has tried this with basically everyone. If you'll remember, his thoughts about Jeffrey Epstein were, ooh, I wonder if the Clintons killed him. He basically, you know, if he could have a long-going investigation into every Democratic figure who exists in the world and some who don't yet, he would be perfectly happy because he knows that the presence of an investigation into someone who isn't him, mm-hmm. or, and especially because he could be like, you know, why aren't you looking at this? Why aren't you looking at that? When and I think that that's why you've seen a lot of folks on the left who are, one, very mad at Ken Vogel about this. Uh, Sure. Because, well, then Ken Vogel went on MSNBC and basically said if Trump could be a little quieter, we could continue this investigation without making it look weird. Ken Vogel is is doing the thing. It's a totally understandable journalist move. It's a very, very, very bad, like... (laughs) you know, dude going on TV and punditing move uh-huh. right. to say there is a there there. I'm sure that my reporting is going to turn something up because when you're doing that as a journalist, like, yes, of course, that's the conversation you have to have with your editor in order to, like, be allowed to continue to report the story. Right. But when you're going on TV and saying there is a there there, everyone is going to hear it as Joe Biden is corrupt. Right. Well, and I do I do want to return to this Hunter thing because, I mean, I, I, I don't think Democrats should totally have their heads in the sand about this. But then moving it forward, right, like, if you're the president, president, like you're allowed to have whatever wishes you want right, about the right. Ukrainian government helping you out. But what appears to have happened here, I mean, we don't know the full details, but but it like America has foreign policy. Yes. Right. Yes. And Congress said Ukraine was going to get this money, uh, not for no reason, but this is why it's like everything is all one big Trump scandal. Right. Yes. But like the Ukrainian government needs military assistance to prevent Russian backed uh, forces in eastern Ukraine from dismembering or taking over the country. Right. right. And so Trump was seeming to say, 
Like, he, he doesn't like Ukraine. Nope. He doesn't want to give Ukraine help. We know that for whatever reason, he has a great deal of sympathy for Vladimir Putin's sort of worldview and, and geopolitics. And so Trump was not going to give Ukraine the money that Congress had appropriated for them unless Ukraine would help him out, not like help the United States of America out with some foreign policy thing we needed help on, but help him out with a specific political problem. Right. And like that is the core of the wrongdoing here, right? Like even if which like, is something like, like, that politicians anything. have been wondering about for months. There was actually, you know, the Wall Street Journal has been really good on this story. And there is a piece from yesterday from Siobhan Hughes who talks about how the law, both Democrats and Republicans have been trying to figure out why there's been this massive delay in money going to the Ukraine. And so, you know, Chuck Schumer called Mitch McConnell to ask and like ask who directed the suspension of aid. And now this is why it's starting to look like perhaps the aid was suspended. It, it also appears that that uh, the, the dearly departed national security advisor, John Bolton, had been trying to get this money uh, flowing. Um, it's not... who, By the way, John Bolton, very interested in talking to people, which is, he's corresponding, like, he, he, there's a look, he's looking into a book deal, and you're starting to see the kind of quotes where you're like, did that quote come with a mustache? Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I do think that that is, you know, it, it is really difficult to overstate the uh, importance of the Bolton departure timing for this, right? Because it is both plausible that one of the issues that hastened the departure of John Bolton would be a difference of opinion over... Is it important to give military aid to Ukraine, which is trying to resist Russian interference? Yes. <laughs> and you can also understand why someone who has just left with a chip on their shoulder might be willing to, like, spill some beans about stuff and help some reporters confirm some hunches and that kind of thing. Right. Um, but but it is, you know, I, I think I think the other the flip side of that is that it really is important to at all phases of this remember that the reason that the U.S. would be giving aid to Ukraine to begin with is because the U.S. has a stated position that Russia should not be getting involved in trying to annex parts of the Ukraine or install its like own people at the head of the country, whereas Donald Trump has a known lack of interest in pursuing that strategy. Well, and this is, I mean, something Jane has talked about many times, but like this is policy toward Ukraine um, separate from the question of, of Joe and Hunter Biden is a classic of like Donald Trump, Trump and, the, the Trump and the Trump administration. Yes. Where like the Trump administration's policy has been more hawkish on Russia than the Obama administration's right. policy was, but Trump's policy is much more dovish. Right, and so you saw that tension here, and there had been stories going back, uh, public stories, right, of like Rudy Giuliani is like doing these trips, he's making these yep. efforts, but what specifically broke this over into scandal territory is some kind of a whistleblower, I think from the National Security Council staff, uh, filed an official whistleblower report to um, the the um, National Intelligence Director Inspector General's office. And you are supposed to, under the statute, hand these complaints over to the, the gang of eight congressional leaders who oversee the intelligence community. Uh, because 
you know, I, this came up with Snowden. It, it's come up time and time again, right? But like the American government does not want people in the intelligence community leaking classified information to the press. But also there has to be some way in theory that you get complaints addressed. And so the legal process that you are supposed to follow is this goes to the inspector general. The inspector general is supposed to forward it to the congressional oversight committees. And then they are supposed to exercise some kind of independent judgment as to whether more people need to know about this. And the Trump administration, as has been typical with their response to all kinds of oversight, has just not done it. Right. 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 So and we which don't... has been very amusing because, um, you know, if you'll recall, all the way back to f- last Friday, Kevin McCarthy and a host of other Republicans were like, well, why didn't this whistleblower just go before Congress? It's <laughs> because the White House won't let them. Right. So, you know, the sort of proximate issue here, I think, right, the one that has uh, inspired um, House Democrats from swing seats to suddenly be more interested in impeachment, right, is that they are trying to escalate and open a door to de-escalation, which would be for the White House to start following the law and hand over the whistleblower report. I mean, I think that that de-escalation model may have been valid up until, like, 24 hours ago. But I think that the latest revelations about the uh, not only who was responsible for withholding aid from Ukraine, but also uh, what appears to have been a deliberate effort from the White House and uh, Mick Mulvaney, acting White House chief of staff and also acting head of the Office of Management. Uh, or actual head of the Office of Management and Budget, um, to mislead Congress about why that aid was being withheld. Well, yes, but right? I mean, it's you You would have to know, right? I mean, the point is, I, I think, you know, right now it's like impeachment, impeachment, impeachment. But like the possible like long, dull story of this is that the administration will, in fact, cough up the paperwork. And then that will start a process of getting things. Because right now what we have is like, I trust the Washington Post reporters, on that story about Mick Mulvaney's role. But it is a very, like, it's investigative journalism, you know, like multiple bylines, sources familiar, and like in a— And then occasionally Trump saying something like, yeah, I thought Germany should have paid this money or something like that, which is one of those things where it's been interesting because uh, Byron York at the Washington Examiner had a piece that he was like, you know, a lot of administration people were like, there is this phone call that apparently took place between Trump and Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, in which (laughs) Trump allegedly asked eight times for Mm -hmm. an investigation into Hunter Biden. And some Trump administration people are like, let's just release the transcript of the phone call. Then we can get this all hashed out and I'm sure it's fine, which I feel as if the phrase I'm sure it's fine is uttered so many times in the executive office building. But like you're starting to see some people even within Trumpian circles arguing like, well, why don't we just see what right. this person has but, to say? But I, but I think like the the transcript is a little bit of a red herring here, right? Like you need to see the whole complaint because like these leaks about Mulvaney are relevant, right? Like one phone call decontextualized in which Trump keeps badgering the guy mm-hmm. and the other guy keeps stalling him. That's just going to be like, well, who's to say? Like, like maybe you wish the president hadn't said right, that. Like the president has, like, has been known to go off on weird riffs and calls with foreign leaders all the time. The, you know, sub- the question in this administration is what degree of follow-up is there from people who are not Donald Trump to, like, actual diplomats afterwards? Like, no, the president is serious about this. Well, and, right, and on an intergovernmental level, exactly. right? Like, when people had—because if the setup for that call 
right, was the foreign minister of Ukraine was told by the assistant secretary of state for Eastern Europe, you've got to get this sorted out with the president. He's got some kind of problem with you. And then you get on the phone with Trump and he's badgering you about the investigation. Like, that's very different. It's like you need the whole record of what actually happened here. Of course, I don't know what the whistleblower's statement said, so I can't tell you if it is a fully documented set of events. But like, that's why, I mean, for one thing, Congress has to see it because that's what the statute says. But also like you need a fuller picture of these things. It's not good enough for the White House to review everything they have, then decide what isn't that damning and then release that. Like, that's not how um, that's not how it, it, it's supposed to work. Yeah, I don't I, I, I think that I mean, we should we should take a break and then talk about the impeachment picture. picture. But I do think that it's it is no longer just a thing about what is in this whistleblower report. It is also the aid is to a certain extent a dead letter, right? Like it's mm-hmm. been released. Mitch McConnell has decided that his take on this is to go to the Senate floor and talk about how badly he wanted that aid released and how glad he is that it was. Um, but now that we have this post story, which like yes, multiple bylines sources say, but also immediately confirmed by basically everybody else who has a substantial team. That, could be investigating this sort of thing, um, which tends to indicate that there is a critical mass of people within the administration who wanted to get this out there. That raises questions about, like, was Congress being actively misled by the White House? And that is the kind of, like, fundamental trust question that, like, you can't just release the whistleblower report and have everything have, have them say everything's hunky-dory if there is evidence that there were several weeks this summer during which Congress was being told, oh, there's an interagency holdup, when in fact that was Mick Mulvaney saying, <laughs> I am the agency, I am the law. Right. Let's take a break. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then WISE might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. 
Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com. So I think this has become a, a delicate subject for Democrats um, because I don't think that it is right to cast this as a question of like, equivalence or like both sides are bad. But the fundamental reason why Trump sees political upside in getting Hunter Biden in some kind of investigative spotlight is that the overall story of Hunter Biden, if you read the New Yorker profile of him that was written, if you read uh, Politico's investigation into Hunter and his uncle James's various business dealings, is a picture that is not like a super pretty picture. It's it's not one where any like horrifying acts of corruption take place or necessarily anything bad happens to anybody. But this is like a guy, two guys, really, like a, a, a brother and son of a longtime important politician whose whole career seems to be kind of hanging around and implying to various people that hiring them will get you stuff from Joe Biden. And like, you know, you ask yourself, like, like, why was Hunter Biden on the board of this Ukrainian energy company in the first place? Right. And it's, I think, pretty obviously just like some kind of vague sense on the part of whoever was was involved that like, well, it couldn't hurt to like have a, a good in with the administration. And it seems like it didn't help them out with this particular jam. And it seems like from, from uh, Ben Schenkinger's uh, report in Politico on this, it seemed like this is been like Joe Biden's general posture on this. Like his brother started an investment fund and part of his pitch was like, well, I'm going to get labor unions to invest in the fund and they're going to want to do it because they're going to want to invest in Joe Biden. And it turned out that he was just bullshitting, right? And like Joe Biden didn't do anything to help him raise money from, from unions. So good for Joe. But like also, I mean, I think this is the kind of reason why people who like Trump's cultural politics, don't mind Trump's corruption, that they just sort of view the, the system as corrupt. Which is, I think that that's one of the interesting things about this. And um, I, Jake Tapper was talking to Steven Mnuchin, uh, I think, yesterday on this very subject, because if you're talking about, if you are very concerned about Hunter Biden, boy, have I to, do I need to introduce you to Donald Trump Jr. and Ivanka Trump and Eric Trump, the other one? Because I think that there's a sense, you know, there, there's a long history in American presidential politics of kind of family hangers on. Perhaps some some remind uh, some can remember the Rogers Clinton of the world, a name I'm sure some of you have not uh -huh. heard in like 30 years. But like this was this has always been kind of a thing, and you know it happened within the Jimmy Carter administration. It's something that came up a bunch during Bill Clinton's two terms in terms of the involvement of both Clintons and Rodhams in ver who all tried to use the Clinton or Rodham name to get somewhere. And so it's it's been an interesting moment in which if you are very, very concerned about, you know, and I think Jake Tapper made this point, like if you're very concerned about Hunter Biden, then should you not be concerned with the fact that the Trump organization still continues onward while, you know, clearly benefiting the president of the United States? But if you are not very concerned about Hunter Biden, does that mean you should not be concerned with the involvement of the Trump children? And it's one of those 
it's one of those weird things where, you know, something about 2016 that I really got was just the degree to how much things that I perceived within the world of D.C., like the fact that everyone knows each other and everyone emails each other, and it turns out political rivals just hang out and go to Red Rocks on each street together. People outside of that world find that, like, anathema, and are just like, how dare you? How could you? Right, and like I think if this you were is, playing for real stakes, yeah, then you would like understand. This wouldn't be a weirdo is- spy versus spy. We shake hands at the end of the day and go get happy hour drinks. But then, you know, with a story like this, in my head, I'm like, it sounds to me like, oh, like Hunter Biden, kind of a fail son who kind of failed upwards. I'm like, I, you know, that you've heard that story before. And especially within the context of Joe Biden's family, which has been marked by such immense tragedy, this like this seems to me as kind of like, oh, that seems kind of like a standard story. But if you are not a part of this, if you do not observe politics in the same way that I do, which is probably for the best, I can understand how like what the when you, the idea of Trump's corruption is kind of like, well, we're just getting ours back after years of putting up with Clinton's, so right. to speak. This gets to what I think is the trickiest part of this, which is unlike 2016, when so much of the kind of Clinton miasma right. happened during the general election phase of the campaign, where it was it was deter- like Hillary Clinton was the person facing Donald Trump. This is happening in the midst of an active primary campaign right. in which let's not lose sight of the fact that like Joe Biden has been showing a certain amount of softness in polls lately. Mm-hmm. And so so the reason that Donald Trump cares about Hunter Biden is because and we know this because it's very widely reported. Donald Trump is obsessed with the question of who's going to run against him in 2020. He thinks he's a political genius because he won the election in 2016. And so he's, you know, trying to like pick his opponent and like moot, you know, what are going to be good opposition tactics against his opponent. He's much more worried about Joe Biden than he is about the rest of the candidates in the race, which makes sense given Donald Trump's assessment of himself as like the most popular person in the world, right? Because to a certain extent, the Joe Biden political theory is there are Donald Trump like fairly enthusiastic Donald Trump voters in 2016 who will come out for Democrats again in 2020. Right. Um, And he's much less concerned about, like, say, the, you know, the Elizabeth Warren of the world. He's very convinced that he can just, like, say Pocahontas and everyone will fall out. So this is Trump trying to pull, like, a Harry Reid, right, where you pick the – you try to kneecap your strongest opponent Mm -hmm. so that you can face a weaker opponent. Right. But – that assumes like the the question it makes a is a host of assumptions about what 2016 was because I think that we've talked about this before that you saw during the midterms Trump was like I didn't win because of economic anxiety or because of concerns about protectionism I run won because I told everybody immigrants were coming to kill them and I'll just keep telling people that immigrants are coming to kill them and then during the midterms there are a lot of arguments made about what happened during the midterms and the inf- impact of the Kavanaugh hearings and things like that. But clearly that messaging didn't quite work, particularly in the House. And so you get a sense that, like, Trump does think that, you know, his political genius of winning in 2016 had nothing to do with his his opponent but with himself. And I think that he thinks if I just do this again, it'll be fine. Right. I definitely, I think that it would be a bad idea for the Democratic primary 
constellation of institutions and people to look at Donald Trump targeting Joe Biden and say, wow, Donald Trump's really scared of Uncle Joe. That must mean that Uncle Joe is the strongest candidate we can run. However, I do think there are a couple of dynamics here that even if Trump has not like explicitly identified them, might actually contribute to Trump's point. One of them is that we have seen uh, not only in the 2016 cycle, but after that, that a certain part of the anti-establishment Democratic left, you know, kind of does buy into the Trump argument that corruption is endemic, that everybody's doing it, and that that actually should reflect badly on Democratic politicians who have done anything like this. Right. Um, to a certain extent, you know, kind of among the commentariat, that's gone from being anti-anti-Trump to, like, actively pro-Trump. But you can definitely anticipate that there are a lot of, like, Bernie Sanders 2016 primary voters who are looking at this and saying, gee, this seems like a good reason not to run Joe Biden. Like you can you can you can right. kind of you can make that logical argument. The other part of this is that Joe Biden's candidacy in 2020 is based on everything was great before Donald Trump came on the scene. Wouldn't it be great to go back to that? That makes this a very, very risky thing for him to be responding to because it's very easy for him to say something like, Everything is everything that is being talked about is perfectly normal, which would play into the anti-establishment critique that Trump wants. This is wait. I mean, this is the ambiguity of American public opinion, right? Which I think (laughs) (laughs) both deeply craves a return to normalcy. Right. After the sort of chaos and madness of the Trump world fears to an extent like a strong, radical, ideological, left-wing overhaul of American public policy, right? I mean, like, we there was some good polling out over the weekend that it was like, Trump's wall idea is unpopular. Uh, but, like, Democrats' idea that undocumented immigrants should get government-financed health care is even more unpopular, right? Like, people sort of, like, want to get rid of Trump, want to get rid of the madness, um, like some Democratic ideas, but are not, like, craving the furthest left ideas. But at the same time, I did my my piece today, like there's a Gallup poll from back in 2014, right? And it showed that it had been 10 years earlier, 60% of the public thought corruption was widespread in American politics. By the late Obama years, it was up to 75%, right? So it's very dangerous. It's like people want a return to normal. But then when you look in detail at what normal was like, and then you say like, well, that's just normal, like that, that doesn't it doesn't go over that well, right? That like to people, I don't know, people like me, people like us, people who are like in D.C. writing things, talking to politicians, it seems very striking to me that like there is normal stuff and then there is Trump stuff, which is beyond the normal. But like it's not that voters don't recognize that there's a difference between normal and abnormal. But like the normal way of doing business in Washington is not considered by the mass public to be acceptable, actually. And this is why I think traditionally you have, you know, endless cycles of politicians. So it's whether it's the young senator like JFK or Barack Obama or like the random governor like Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan, Bill Clinton, um, like You've tended to get people who are not like outside the political system in the Trump sense, but people who are not entrenched Washington figures. I mean, that's the entire like Mr. Smith goes to Washington, this idea that you can be this like 
believing outsider, which I think is kind of where kind of the perceptions of Bernie Sanders, kind of the idea of Bernie Sanders. And I have a whole theory on how there's (laughs) Bernie Sanders and there's kind of the idea of Bernie Sanders. And those are two different things. But kind of this idea that you could have somebody who comes in and cleans everything up and puts all all the backs up against the wall and makes everyone answer for everything that they did. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is something that people need to be responsive to. No, like, I totally understand Joe Biden's pitch, especially, you know, people are, there's been a lot of writing about, like, how solid he is with, like, older African-American voters. Mm -hmm. I'm like, well, if you're an African-American voter in your late 60s, early 70s, and somebody is like, hey, do you remember the Obama presidency? And you're like, I sure do. Do you want to kind of do that again? Well, okay. I think that that's an effective message in South Carolina and other areas. And I think that one thing that we didn't have to contest with in 2016, and it'll sound a little weird, is now 2016 is this thing that hangs over everything. Mm-hmm. And so everyone's reaction to the reporting on this story was, we're doing it again. We're doing it again. Like the New York Times is both sides in on the front page and it's going to be butter emails all over again. And I'm I'm curious how much that psychological damage is going to play into well, this. Well, this is my big, big question is, What does the Bernie Sanders war room look like right now? What does the Elizabeth Warren war room look like right now? Like if you're Pete Buttigieg or Kamala Harris, neither of whom is attacking Biden from the left per se, but both of whom have like strong incentives to try to knock some support off the front runner in the race. Like what are you looking at this and doing? Because on the one hand, there appears to be a certain amount of kind of not I wouldn't say frustration because I don't want to psychologize it, but like there appears to be a certain uh, bewilderment as to what can be done to get Joe Biden out of his position as the front runner (laughs) in the, you know, in in the nomination. And like no one's really come up with an attack line that sticks and that isn't immediately like prior to this, the easiest way to go after Joe Biden was to talk about his age and the, you know, his like the question of whether his customary gaffes were turning into something more serious. And like that was not something that even the commentariat had worked out a safe way to talk about, much less the candidates themselves. But this, on the one hand, is in theory a huge opportunity. And on the other hand, if you have any sense of Democratic Party loyalty, you look at this and go, well, am I kneecapping the party in 2020 if Biden does end up winning the nomination. The reason that I'm most interested in the Sanders response to this is because we know that Bernie Sanders and the Bernie Sanders team is not very responsive to critiques of you should shut up and do it. Uh, you should shut up for the sake of party unity. Like, that's why well, he didn't drop out in 2016. Sanders, I think, but. is in an interesting position in this, right? Because, like, the Bernie Sanders view of politics is that all disagreement with Bernie Sanders on all subjects just is a sign of corruption. And so in a weird way, I think it makes him, like, unlikely to press this specific topic, right? Because, like, I'd been reading, um, like, like Bernie Sanders' campaign uh, emails, right? And they had been saying quite clearly since before this happened that, like, the reason Bernie and Biden have a different position on healthcare policy is that Joe Biden is on the take from the health insurance industry, right? And that doesn't surprise me because they do. I mean, you know— they attribute literally every disagreement on every subject to 
uh, financial corruption. It's Bernie at his most populist, really. Uh, What's interesting about this to me is like, does this lead the people who are positioned more in the ideological mainstream, right, your Beto's, your Buttigieg's, um, to try to make the case that like – the case I have been urging in many articles for people to make that like you should not offer the voting public this like super polarized choice between we need to go much more left wing or we need this very old, very establishmenty guy. Then when you think, I mean, Jane, you talked about this, like Biden gets so much juice out of warm memories of the Obama administration, right? Obama was a senator before he became president, but he was very new to the Senate, right? And he and Michelle lived in like a pretty regular house in a normal, like slightly bougie, but not like incredibly fancy Chicago neighborhood. They were near the end of paying down their student loans, right? They were like normal-ish people who seemed like unusually maybe smart people, like unusually good at doing speeches, like good politics stuff, but were not themselves uh, veteran, powerful politicians. Like Obama had done some stuff in the Illinois state legislature that was supposed to be a model for what he was going to do for America. And to that, it, it reminds me much more of uh, a Beto or a Buttigieg, you know, like a person. Right. So a, can- a candidacy that is based on upside rather right. than based on like exactly. record, much less fuzzy memories. In of, an of interesting way, in a weird, different way that's kind of similar to how Trump ran, oh, which, is basically, right. really which is basically yeah. like, I've never done this before, but as far as you know, I've been very successful well, with mean, these other things. And, and I mean, like when, when we say people remember the Obama administration, well, that's what they remember Fondly, what they don't mean is like I fondly remember how, um, you know, Lanny Breuer came into the criminal division of the Justice Department from having been a white shoe, like white collar criminal defense attorney. And then he came in and then he said, well, we can't really do any prosecutions of any bankers for any wrongdoing related to the financial crisis. And then he rotated back out to a well-paying gig doing white collar criminal defense. Right. That also happened in the Obama administration. Right. It's Obama. Obama, who we remember positively, right. and Biden, to me, is much more like like the the reality of politics is that like the young new white knight who comes to town does not in fact unleash like a cleansing fire that purifies <laughs> the system. It's like the system continues to trudge on, and one of the ways the system continues to trudge on is that Obama picked a much older, much more experienced veteran legislator whose presence on the ticket signified, you know, some of it signified to like um, maybe white, slightly racist people that Obama was not that bothered by gaffes, but it also signaled to members of Congress that like Obama gets it. Like we're going to keep governing. This isn't, you know, pie in the sky ideas, which I think like there's an idea. I think that there's a concept that people have that like we don't want politics as usual, but we kind of want politics as usual. The polity may not want politics as usual. The like the people who you need to enact your agenda are the ones who have enough experience in politics as usual to be invested in it. And that's why Mike Pence ends up on the Trump ticket, right? That Pence 
was governor of Indiana, was a veteran member of the House. He was somebody who Republicans in Washington knew personally and they understood. Somebody who backbench Republicans who may not have great relationships with Trump can get on the phone with Mike Pence and talk about whatever it is they're trying to do. And of course, right, if one of these more outsidery Democrats gets the nomination, my expectation would be that they will pick a relatively long-serving member of Congress to be their VP for these same kinds of reasons that, like, that's how Al Gore got on the ticket with Bill Clinton, right? Like, that's the the classic way you put a ticket together is with, like, a fresh-faced outsider at the top of the ticket and then, like, Dick Cheney or Joe Biden at the bottom of the ticket. And it doesn't work to just invert that, right? right? right. And, like, make the number two guy number one uh, because the number two guy was there to complement the number one guy. He's not a clone. Like, Obama didn't have, like, a second young hip black guy on the ticket who can <laughs> who can bring back the magic, right? Like, he right. has Joe Biden. Right. I mean, another way to frame this is can you imagine after, like, one or two debates, assuming that the Trump administration doesn't find a way to get out of the debates and, you know, instead just do like, you know, a bunch of more stump speed, a bunch more rallies, which I am pretty sure is something that they will at least moot doing, even if they can't actually get around the president, the commission right. on presidential debates. But like, can you imagine not only Donald Trump turning every single question into what about Joe Biden's son on the board of the Ukrainian oil company, but a vice presidential debate in which some relatively young, fresh-faced, fresh faced, like, you know, playing the role of John Edwards in 2004 type is being held to account by Mike Pence for how can you engage in this hypocrisy of saying that you're going to clean up government when the man at the top of your ticket is embroiled in this oil thing? And, like, this is where it gets really, really, really tricky for Democrats to talk about this honestly, right? Because if you're concerned that there is a like fundamentally not, you know, warranted, but still present paranoia or liability in your candidate, do you really, is that the hill you die on, right? Do you decide that it is worth it to continue to say, look, this Joe Biden thing is merit, this Joe Biden thing is meritless. We're going to educate the public relentlessly about this. We're going to go to war with the New York Times every time they write the wrong headline. Or do you price it in and say, okay, warranted or not, this is something that one candidate in this field may have that other candidates may not have? And that's a really, really – I mean, especially, again, this is all happening with a polity that, like, frankly needs to go into individual and collective therapy because 2016 has just – I think borked so many reactions to politics that there are some things where you can you could have had that conversation in 2015. You cannot have that conversation now. I I also think though that if you're a Democrat thinking about 2020, you're not thinking of I me. Mean, I think there are some people. There's this idea I think among some on the left that this is kind of like Trump has driven accelerate accelerationism forward, and now we can get to the real revolution that we were promised in 2016, but the revolution had to hold a minute. But I think for a lot of people, and based on Fox News' polling and a bunch of other polls, people are fucking tired. Sure. They're extremely tired of this. And I genuinely think of people, you know, I'm aware that traditionally the not that guy campaign doesn't really work as we saw in 2004. But I think in 2020, I would not be surprised if Democrats were just like, well, he's Donald Trump. 
and he's not. That's the campaign. Goodbye, everybody. Oh, I have so much more to say about this, but I think we should take another break and, and turn to the white paper. I think the last time we talk about Joe Biden on the Weeds podcast. No, yes, watch me be happening. proven wrong. All right. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to the Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. This week's white paper is from Michael Light and Julia Thomas of the University of Wisconsin-Madison. A version of this was published in the American Sociological Review recently. We are working from the version that was presented at the 2019 Population Association of America annual meeting. Uh, hot. So to professors Light and Thomas, if we're going to say something that was subsequently changed, like let us know, but also Dear American Sociological Review and all other academic journals, get your stuff out from behind a paywall so that people like us don't have to work from, you know, the the PAA annual meeting papers. Anyway, uh, it is called Segregation and Violence Reconsidered. Do Whites Benefit from Residential Segregation? Question mark. And the the short answer is yes. Um, the paper uses a bunch of different sources of data going from 1970 through the 20-teens to establish that you know, as you could probably like logically assume, segregation is very bad for violent crime rates in black communities where they, you know, where more segregated areas tend to have higher levels of black victimization to homicide. But more, I think, surprisingly, segregation turns out to be really good for white people in terms of victimization to violent crime, that in more segregated areas, and this isn't just like one of the important things about this paper is they're not just looking at, like, segregated neighborhoods in cities, but segregated metropolitan areas where whites have fled to the suburbs. In more segregated metros, the white homicide rate is substantially lower than it is in in, in less segregated metros. And, you know, while there are kind of some theoretical implications to this and actually, you know, is is weighing in pretty heavily on one side of a theoretical debate, the upshot of this is that, you know, everything that people say about criminogenic aspects of, like, poverty, of underinvestment, of, you know, legal cynicism because whole neighborhoods can get ignored by the police and that kind of thing. Like, if you play that out logically, it makes sense that this would be true. But it turns out that, yes, there are not only areas of American metros where there appears to have been kind of a, a like, a state disinvestment and a vacuum in which violence can flourish, but also kind of opportunity hoarding suburbs in which white people are substantially safer than they were when they were living in cities where they could run into black people sometimes. Well, and they're saying, I mean, they're distinguishing between uh, one thing that's methodologically interesting about this is they say that previous research had indicated that more segregated cities were not safer for white people well, there was than a, more integrated a, cities. Yeah, there was a, a solid, like, theoretical argument mm -hmm. that you could – that because you couldn't build a cross-racial coalition in segregated cities, that, like, that would mean that things wouldn't be able to go as well 
uh, for, you know, for white people either. Right. And like, if well, you but look there, at but, the, But yeah. there's like an empirical finding too. Yeah. And they say that, well, if so if you look beyond the pattern of residential segregation in the central city and you look at the pattern of residential segregation in the suburbs, right, that it works. That, and, you know, this is like an academic paper, so it operates within its constraints. But I think if you take this paper into the realm of common sense, right, this will be, look, in some cities, there are these incredibly segregated white flight suburbs. And a liberal would say, finger wag, oh, this is bad, you guys. And the people there would be like, real talk. We got ourselves really safe neighborhoods this yeah, way. Yeah. And that this paper essentially vindicates the racist people's white flight impulses. He doesn't write it that way because, of course, you wouldn't write a scholarly paper that's like, yeah, actually, you guys were right to flee central cities and move to all white suburbs. But like this, like if you were afraid of crime and felt that the best way to insulate yourself from that was to create a hyper-segregated residential environment. Like, this paper seems to be saying that that is the case. And so probably this finding should be suppressed. Right, I mean— Canceled. I, I do think that—I um, mean, I think that there there is a way to put that that is slightly, it, like, more academic and less inflammatory, and they do that, right? They're quoting Doug oh, Massey they, from 2001. They, they sure do. That, but... like, that white people—that, like— segregation is the product of individual and institutional white choices. And those choices were made because white people benefit from it. Like, if you put yeah, it that I way, mean, it's that, kind I of mean, a, like, that, well, duh Yeah, finding. that's kind of the entire—like, that was kind of the point, is that, like, when white people were more or less forced to interact with non-white people, they shut down school districts and set up private schools in order to do to avoid doing so. So I think that this, it was interesting reading this paper because I'm like, yeah, that that shape that, that makes sense. What what I think is interesting is kind of the the a I, I find it fascinating that it's that for as much as sociology has been obsessed with like with the effects of segregation and the geography of stratification in the U.S. Uh, and opportunity hoarding and all that kind of thing. It's it's weird that the uh, existing like research on this has not been, that this isn't like a very traditional m mode of inquiry. It's also interesting that so much, so much of this relies on the question of how do you measure how segregated an area is? Because on the one hand, uh, there are arguments that the U.S. is you know, substantially less segregated now than it was in, you know, 1970, that we're now at like 1910 levels of, ra of racial segregation. There's also, uh, on the other hand, the argument that if you look at uh, if you look at municipality to municipality, i.e. like suburbs and exurbs and all of that jazz, that we are in an era of macro segregation that has not really been dealt with before. And so, what this particular finding means varies depending on which of those views you value, right? Like, if you think that segregate that like we've already kind of we're way past the peak of residential segregation in the U.S., then this is kind of a historical finding, right? Like, oh, when white people were really successful at keeping black people out of their areas, it was very safe for them. But we're like at the tail end. We're like just past a 25-year, you know, substantial reduction in the crime rate. Right. You know, even the least safe places in America are a lot safer than they were in the early 90s, yada, yada, yada. So, like, in that context, maybe this is a little, you know, a, a little safer of a finding to make because, it, you know, it's not like there's been this massive spike in the crime rate if, you know, as segregation has decreased. But if you believe in the kind of macro segregation model, then that is, you know— 
there's not a whole lot of argument to actively try to undo, you know, to move white people back into the cities from the suburbs if you believe that that is part of what has kept the homicide rate low. Which I would be interested in seeing because African-Americans and many non-white people, the paper gets into how it talks about um, Hispanic immigrants and others, but African-Americans followed white people to the suburbs because the suburbs were where the nice schools and the houses were. And now uh, white people have moved back into the cities. And so a lot of those inner ring suburbs in areas like where we grew up in Cincinnati and a lot of other Midwestern and Southern cities are predominantly African-American. And so it'll be interesting to see in future data how that is viewed by the same, you know, white families that moved to the suburbs to get away from non-white people, even if they didn't think that that's what they were doing, who are now moving back to the cities. But the other thing that I think is, um, you know, that that in practice renders this a less politically inflammatory finding is that Frankly, the fact the idea that cities are full of black people and unsafe has been very important to the white political imagination for the last several decades, even when white people haven't been living in cities. Right. Like this is something we've talked about on the podcast before, like even as people believe that their neighborhood is generally pretty safe every single year while crime was going down, they believed that crime was going down. Yeah, but I don't think the import of this is really about cities. It's about the suburbs, right? It's about you will find in several of the candidates, Democratic candidates, housing plans, right? And some of their education plans as well, because these are linked issues. The idea that we need to um, break apart exclusionary zoning patterns that prevent people from building either, you know, market rate apartment buildings or, uh, you know, in the case of of Bernie's plan or Elizabeth Warren's plan, like dedicated low-income housing in affluent suburban jurisdictions, right? And this is sort of the question, right, is like, is there a harm to you in your favored quarter, all-white suburb of letting, you know, an apartment building that some low-income Latino and African-American people will live in. Uh, you know, maybe it's by a metro system and it's stationed in the D.C. suburbs uh, or an LIRR uh, station on the North Shore of Long Island or wherever it is. And, in you know, you see in Connecticut, right, like this is a state with, with a lot of inequality and like big gaps between sort of fancy suburban jurisdictions and, and uh, much poorer sort of small-scale cities, right? And so, like, is there like a real harm in sharing the suburbs with less privileged people? And, like, this paper is saying that, like, yes, there is. Um, and I think it would be interesting to see, like, if you if you pencil it out, right, like, in the in the aggregate social welfare function, it still seems to me that it's actually very important to support, like, deconcentrating poverty and social dysfunction. And, like, I really... I mean, again, look, people should do their research. They, they, I was joking before, they should not suppress unfavorable findings. But, like, I am much more encouraged by the education version of this literature, which, like, people have looked at and seems to suggest that, like, there is not a big problem uh, with integrating the classroom, that there is a big upside to the disadvantaged people and no real downside, and people should, like, let go of their fears. Uh, the crime version of this, like, as long as the crime rate is falling, I think it's fairly persuasive to say, like, people should try to relax a little bit more about this. Um, but, you know, it's a it's an inconvenient uh, finding. I mean, here. I think the other 
what this doesn't do is demonstrate exactly what the well i think i think one of the big empirical questions that is maybe not answerable given the data that we have um but that i think is going to be like if you were to be you know that if you were a white supremacist looking at this uh study the thing you would ask is okay so what about perpetrator race right like it is kind of assumed in the context of this paper that everybody knows that uh within race crime is much, 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 much more common than between race crime. And that therefore, we don't really need to establish, like, by the way, when we talk about white people getting killed, we're talking about white people killing them. That is an assumption. I assume it would be borne out by the empirics, but like they are not doing the legwork on that. And so assuming that is true and everything we know about crime rates generally holds up in this case, we're not actually talking about if you let brown and black people into your neighborhood, they will kill you. We're talking about if you let brown and black people into your neighborhood, changes will happen in the institutions of your neighborhood that make it more likely that white people in your neighborhood will kill other white people. And if that's the case, then we don't necessarily need to assume that it is that it is inevitable that segregation is going to increase violence, right? There are like maybe, you know, maybe this is where we get back to the building cross-racial coalitions kind of thing. If you maybe don't assume that having black and brown people in your neighborhood means that the police need to be spending all of their time, you know, like trying, to, like throwing, you know, throwing black and brown boys onto the sidewalk just in case they had a can of spray paint, like that kind of thing. You know, maybe there are actual policy choices that led to, you know, as we were talking about in the white paper last week, policy choices made, you know, by powerful actors that led to things coming out that in retrospect might have looked inevitable. And so maybe if you're being proactive about this and you're actively trying to reduce segregation, you're also trying to ask yourself, what are the circumstances in which white people lose faith in political institutions because they are living in a more pluralistic situation where, like, for example, like, is it inevitable that white people will be less supportive of the welfare state when more immigrants move in? It's 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 another side of the same question, right? right. Like, is this actually a story about about, you know, criminogenic effects in populations, or is it actually a story about how the kind of politically enfranchised people feel about political institutions and which ones they're willing to support and not willing to support? Uh, with that, I think we should close it out here. Uh, thanks, as always, to our um, sponsors um, and to our producer, Jeffrey Geld. And The Weeds will return on Friday. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.